Lesson 3 for January 12 to 18, Jesus' Messages to the Seven Churches. Sabbath afternoon, January 12. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you and thank you for all of your blessings to us. And we thank you for this book of Revelation, which teaches us about Jesus, which teaches us about you, and which teaches us about your Holy Spirit. We pray as we open your word this week that your Holy Spirit will again guide us, that our hearts and our minds may be in tune with yours. Bless us in our daily lives for whatever reason we need you today. I pray that you will be there with each listener. In Jesus' name, Amen. Our memory text this week is Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Let's read that again, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. From Patmos, Jesus sent a letter via John with seven messages to his people. While those messages concern the churches in Asia of John's day, they also each prophetically portray in symbols the condition of the church throughout history. A side-by-side -side comparison of these messages shows that they follow the same six-fold structure. Each opens with Jesus addressing the specific church by name. The second part begins with the phrase, These things says in which Jesus introduces himself to each church using descriptions and symbols found in chapter 1. Those descriptions of Jesus were suited to the specific needs of each church. Thus, Jesus pointed to his ability to meet their different struggles and situations. Next, Jesus gives an appraisal of the church, and then he counsels the church how to get out of its predicaments. Finally, each message concludes with an appeal to hear the Spirit's message and with promises to the overcomers. As we see in last week's lesson, in our analysis of the message to the first church in Ephesus, and as we see this week in our study of the remaining six messages, Jesus offers hope and answers the needs of each church in each situation. Hence, surely, he can meet our needs today as well. Sunday, January 13, Christ's Messages to Smyrna and Pergamum Smyrna was a beautiful and wealthy city, but it also was a centre of mandated emperor worship. Refusing to comply with this mandate could lead to the loss of legal status, to persecution, and even to martyrdom. Question. Read Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through to 11. How does the way that Jesus presents himself to this church relate to the church's situation? What was the situation of the church? What warning does Jesus give to the church about what 
was coming. Revelation 2, beginning at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The message to the church in Smyrna applies prophetically to the church in the post-apostolic era, when Christians were viciously persecuted by the Roman Empire. The ten days, mentioned in Revelation 2.10, point to the ten years of the Diocletian persecution from AD 303 until AD 313, when Constantine the Great issued the Edict of Milan, which granted Christians religious freedom. Pergamum was the centre of various pagan cults, including the cult of Asclepius the Greek god of healing, who was called the Saviour and was represented by a serpent. People came from all over to the shrine of Asclepius to be healed. Pergamum had a leading role in promoting the cult of emperor worship, which, as in Smyrna, was compulsory. No wonder Jesus said that the Christians in Pergamum lived in the city where Satan's seat is and where his throne was located. Question. Read Revelation 2, verses 12 through to 15. How does Jesus present himself to this church? What was his appraisal of its spiritual condition? Revelation 2, beginning at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. The Christians in Pergamum faced temptations from both outside and inside the church. While most of them remained faithful, some, the Nicolaitans, advocated compromise with paganism in order to avoid persecution. Like Balaam, who apostatized and enticed the Israelites to sin against God on the way to the Promised Land, as we read in Numbers 31.16, these members found it more convenient and even rewarding to compromise their faith. Let's see what Balaam did in Numbers 31.16. Look. These women caused the children of Israel, through the counsel of Balaam, to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. 
Though the Jerusalem Council had forbidden things offered to idols and sexual immorality, as we studied last quarter in Acts 15.29, the doctrine of Balaam taught church members to reject this decision. The only solution Jesus can offer to Pergamum is repent, as we read in Revelation 2.16. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The church in Pergamum is a prophetic picture of the church from approximately A.D. 313 to 538. Although some members in the church remained faithful, spiritual decline and apostasy increased rapidly. And so to finish the day, what does it mean not to deny my faith, as we read in Revelation 2.13? Also, we'll have a look at Revelation 14 and verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. How can our refusal to deny our faith help us to resist compromise and be faithful unto death, as it read in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10? Monday, January 14, Christ's Message to Thyatira In comparison with other cities, Thyatira had no political or cultural significance that we know of. Furthermore, the church was obscure. In order to run a business or have a job, people in the Roman Empire had to belong to trade guilds. Thyatira was especially noted for enforcing this requirement. Guild members had to attend the guild festivals and participate in temple rituals, which often included immoral activities. Those who did not comply faced expulsion from the guilds and economic sanctions. For Christians at that time, that meant choosing between total compromise or total exclusion for the sake of the gospel. Question, read Revelation 2, verses 18 through to 29. How does Jesus present himself to the church in Thyatira? Also look at Daniel 10.6. What were the qualities that Jesus commended the church for, and what issue troubled it? Revelation 2, verses 18 to 29 reads, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. 
Now to you I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my words until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Daniel 10 verse 6 reads, His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in colour, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. Like the church in Pergamum, the church in Thyatira was pushed to compromise with the pagan environment. The name Jezebel refers to the wife of King Ahab, who led Israel into apostasy, as recorded in 1 Kings 16, beginning at verse 31. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Jesus portrayed Jezebel as spiritually immoral in Revelation 2.20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow this woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Those church members who compromised the truth and adopted unclean pagan ideas and practices were committing spiritual adultery with her. The church in Thyatira symbolises the condition of Christianity from AD 538 to 1565. During this time, the danger to God's people did not come from outside the church, but from within. Tradition replaced the Bible. A human priesthood and sacred relics replaced Christ's priesthood, and works were regarded as the means of salvation. Those who did not accept these corrupting influences were persecuted and even killed. For centuries, the true church found refuge in wilderness areas, as we read in Revelation 12, verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days, and verses 13 and 14. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time, and times, and half a time, from the presence of the serpent. But Jesus also commends the church in Thyatira for their faith and love, works and service, pointing to the Reformation and the beginnings of a return to the Bible. So, to finish today, think about the words in Revelation 2.25, Hold fast what you have till I come. 
What do those words mean to us, both corporately and individually? What do we have from Jesus that we must hold on to? Tuesday, January 15, Christ's Message to Sardis Sardis had a glorious history, but by the Roman period the city had lost its prestige. While the city was still enjoying wealth, its glory was rooted in its past history rather than in present reality. The ancient city had been built on top of a steep hill and was nearly impregnable. Because the citizens felt so secure, the city walls were guarded carelessly. Question. Read Revelation chapter 3 verses 1 through to 6, along with Matthew 24, 42 to 44 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through to 8. What three things does Jesus urge the Christians in Sardis to do as a cure for their spiritual condition? How did Jesus' warning to watch correspond to the city's history. First of all, Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father, and before his angels. He who hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Matthew 24, beginning at verse 42. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched, and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through to 8. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labour pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, are drunk at night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of 
salvation. While Jesus recognises a few Christians in Sardis as faithful, most of them are spiritually dead. The church is not charged with any open sin or apostasy, as are those in Pergamum and Thyatira, but with spiritual lethargy. The message to the church in Sardis applies prophetically to the spiritual situation of the Protestants in the post-Reformation period, from approximately 1565 to 1740, as the church degenerated into lifeless formalism and a state of spiritual complacency. Under the impact of the rising tide of rationalism and secularism, the church's focus on the saving grace of the gospel and commitment to Christ waned, giving place to creedal and dry philosophical arguments. The church of this period, although appearing to be alive, was spiritually dead. Jesus' message to Sardis also applies to every generation of Christians. There are Christians who always talk in glorious terms of their past faithfulness to Christ. Unfortunately, these same Christians do not have much to share about their present experience with Christ. Their religion is nominal, lacking the true religion of the heart and genuine commitment to the gospel. And so to finish the day. Keeping ever before us the great truth of salvation by faith in Christ alone, in what ways could we say that our works have not been found perfect before God? What does that mean, and how can we perfect our works before Him? Well, to finish, let's look at Matthew 5, verses 44 to 48. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Wednesday, January 16, Christ's Message to Philadelphia The sixth church addressed by Jesus was Philadelphia, meaning brotherly love. The city was located on an imperial trade road and served as the gateway, an open door to a large fertile plateau. Excavations indicate that Philadelphia was a centre to which people came for health and healing. Shaken by frequent earthquakes, the city's inhabitants moved to the countryside, living in humble huts. Question. Read Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through to 9. How does the way that Jesus presents himself relate to the situation of this church? What does Jesus' statement, you have a little strength, in Revelation 3, verse 8, say about the condition of the church? Revelation 3, beginning at verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true. 
He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet." and to know that I have loved you. The message to this church applies prophetically to the great revival of Protestantism during the First and Second Awakenings that took place in Great Britain and America from about 1740 to 1844. Given the light they had, God's people did indeed seek to keep my word, as it said in verse 8, at this time there was a growing emphasis on obedience to God's commandments and pure living. The open door is apparently the way into the heavenly sanctuary because the temple of my God is also mentioned in Revelation 3.12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. And we'll compare that with Revelation 4 verses 1 and 2. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. One door being closed, and another door being opened, point to the change that would take place in Christ's high priestly ministry in 1844. Question. Read Revelation chapter 3 verses 10 through to 13. What indications are given that time is short and that the coming of Jesus is drawing near? What is the significance of God's name being written on his people? And we'll look at 2 Timothy 2.19 as well. If a name represents a person's character, what does Exodus 34 verse 6 tell us about those who bear God's name? First of all, Revelation 3.10-13 Because you have kept my command to persevere... I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Second Timothy 2 verse 19. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And Exodus chapter 34 verse 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth.
Great revivals took place in churches on both sides of the Atlantic in the years leading up to 1844. The message of God's soon coming was proclaimed in many parts of the world. God's promise to write his name on those who overcome indicates that God's character will be seen in his people. Just as important as the message that Christ is coming soon is the message that Christ promises to make his people ready for that great event by forgiving their sins and writing his law in their hearts. As it says in Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 10 verses 16 and 17, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. So, to finish the day, what does the hope of Christ's soon coming mean to you? How does Christ promise to complete the work he has begun give us assurance? Thursday, January 17, Christians in Laodicea. The last church addressed by Jesus was in Laodicea, a wealthy city situated on a major trade road. It was famous for its woolen manufacturing industry, its banks, which held a vast quantity of gold, and a medical school, which produced salve. The prosperity of Laodicea filled its citizens with self-sufficiency, Around AD 60, when an earthquake destroyed the city, the citizens declined an offer of assistance from Rome, claiming to have all they needed to do the job. Because the city lacked water, it was supplied through an aqueduct that came from the hot springs of Hierapolis. The source was distant from Laodicea, so the water became lukewarm by the time it got there. Question, read Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through to 17, along with Hosea 12.6. How did the self-sufficient spirit of the city pervade the Laodicean Christians? Revelation 3, beginning at verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And Hosea 12 verse 8, And Ephraim said, Surely I have become rich, I have found wealth for myself in all my labours, they shall find in me no iniquity, that is sin. Jesus did not rebuke the Christians in Laodicea for a serious sin, such as heresy or apostasy. Rather, their problem was complacency, leading to spiritual lethargy. Like the water that reached the city, they were neither refreshingly cold nor hot, but lukewarm. 
They claimed to be rich and in need of nothing, yet they were poor, naked and blind to their spiritual condition. The church in Laodicea symbolizes the spiritual condition of God's church near the close of this earth's history, as certain links with end-time portions of Revelation show. One such link, as given in Jesus' parenthetical warning in Revelation 16.15, refers back to the white garments of Christ's righteousness needed by spiritually naked Laodicea, as it says in Revelation 3.18, I counsel you to buy from me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. And Revelation 16.15, referring to that, says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. The warning to keep one's garments and not walk naked appears in the midst of a reference to the spiritual battle of Armageddon. The timing of Jesus' warning may seem rather strange at first because it is no longer possible to receive these garments. After all, probation already will have closed for everyone. But the warning to keep one's garments appears in connection with the sixth plague and Armageddon because Jesus wants to remind Laodicea to be ready now in advance of that terrible conflict, before it for before it is forever too late. Thus, Revelation 16.15 warns Laodiceans that if they fail to heed Jesus' counsel and instead choose to walk naked, as we read in verses 17 and 18, they will be lost and ashamed at his coming. 1 John chapter 2 Verses 28 through to chapter 3, verse 3 reads, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now are we children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Jesus assures the Laodiceans that he loves them. He appeals for them to repent. In verse 19, For as many as I love I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. He concludes his appeal by picturing himself as the lover in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 2 through to 6. It's the Shulamite's troubled evening, and the Shulamite is talking. I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I rose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh, on the handles of the lock. 
I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave no answer. He was standing at the door and knocking and pleading to be let in, as Revelation 3.20 said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him, and he with me. Everyone who opens the door and lets him in is promised an intimate dinner with him, and ultimately to reign with him on his throne, as we read in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so to finish the day, read Revelation chapter 3, verses 18 through to 20. What counsel does Jesus give to the Laodiceans? Let's read that. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What do gold White garments and eye salve symbolize. Well, we'll look at First Peter 1, verse 7, Isaiah 61, verse 10, and Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. What does this counsel say to us as Seventh-day Adventists who recognize ourselves in the Laodicean church? And those verses again, First Peter 1, 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah 61, 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Friday, January 18.
The seven messages to the churches show spiritual decline in the seven churches. The church in Ephesus was still faithful, although it had lost its first love. The churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia were largely faithful. Pergamum and Thyatira compromised more and more until the vast majority of believers in those churches had completely apostatized from the pure faith of the apostles. The church in Sardis was in a very serious condition. The majority of Christians in this church were out of harmony with the gospel, while Philadelphia represented the faithful few. The church in Laodicea was in a condition of such spiritual lethargy and complacency that there was nothing good to be said about that church. In concluding each message, Jesus makes promises to those in the churches who accept his counsel. One might observe, however, that along with the evident spiritual decline in the churches, there is a proportionate increase in promises given. Ephesus, to whom Jesus gives the first message, received only one promise. As each church follows the downward spiritual trend, each one receives more promises than the previous church. Finally, the church in Laodicea, while given only one promise, receives the greatest promise of all, to share Jesus' throne. Revelation 3.21 To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame, and sat down with my Father on his throne. And that brings us to our discussion questions for this week. 1. How does the increase in promises to each successive church, along with the spiritual decline in the churches, reflect the statement that when sin increases, grace abounds even more? In Romans 5.20, moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Think of that promise in light of the statement from Selected Messages, Book 2, page 396. The church, enfeebled and defective though it be, is the only object on earth on which Christ bestows his supreme regard. He is constantly watching it with solicitude, and is strengthening it by his Holy Spirit. End of quote. Question 2. Often Christians say that it is hard to be a Christian in industrial, commercial and metropolitan cities. In the prosperous cities in Asia, there were Christians who remained loyal to the gospel and unswerving in their allegiance to God amid the pressures exerted upon them by their pagan environment. What can we learn from this fact? Think of those Christians in Asia in light of Jesus' prayer in John seventeen fifteen to 19 how does the concept of being in the world but not of the world apply to Christians today, particularly those living in metropolitan cities? Let's read Jesus' prayer in John 17, beginning at verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. And question three. How can we, as Seventh-day Adventists, better heed the words given to us in the message to the Laodiceans? 
Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled Joy in the Morning and it's by Gorata Obonetsi. One day, a Seventh-day Adventist literature evangelist showed up at our door in Botswana. My mother was interested and bought three books by Ellen White, Messages to Young People, The Desire of Ages, and a King James Bible along with The Great Controversy. Soon she started attending an Adventist church and was baptised. This happened when I was in the eighth grade and thinking about high school. Mother began to pray and fast because she wanted me to go to Eastern Gate Academy, an Adventist boarding school in Francistown, about two and a half hour drive from our home in Mahalapai. But my father refused. He said he didn't have money for the tuition. Mother didn't lose hope and kept on praying. I prayed with her. She woke me in the early morning and we prayed together. We also prayed in the evening. But my father didn't change his mind and I entered ninth grade at a government boarding school in another city. Studying in that school was difficult. Some students used drugs and drank alcohol. The teachers didn't seem to care whether we did our homework, just as long as our parents paid the tuition. After two years at the school, I decided that I'd had enough. I asked my father if I could transfer to the Adventist school. No, he said bluntly. That night, I cried and prayed. I asked the Lord to help me because I really wanted to go to Eastern Gate Academy. I spoke with my mother and she read Psalm 30 verse 5, which says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That verse gave me hope. Two months later, as summer vacation was ending, I asked my father again if I could attend the Adventist school. Fine, he said. I thanked the Lord. From this experience, I learned that the Lord is always listening. Everything happens according to his plan when we have faith and obey him. Now I am 16 years old, and this is my final year at the school. After graduating, I hope to train to become a medical doctor. My whole family has joined the Adventist Church except my father. Please pray for him, for us, and for the school. Eastern Gate Academy shares a campus with Eastern Gate Primary School, which opened in 2017 with the help of a 13th Sabbath offering collected in 2015. Thank you for your mission offerings that support Adventist education around the world. You have been listening to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide by Dr. Percy Harold from Queensland, Australia. This service is brought to you by Hope Channel, the Sabbath School Department and Christian Services for the Blind. Remember, God is always faithful.